You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome once again to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, here to bring you the very best in the scholarship and apologetics. If you notice the blog hasn't been active this week, including an about who's coming on, it's because I've had an upper respiratory infection all this week. Yep, pretty miserable until, well, yesterday. You could still hear some of that in my voice and such today, so my apologies for that. It's kind of hard to avoid. But I do have a great show my guest can only be here for an hour today, but it was honestly he was one of my favorite guests when he was on last time, and I believe that was the fifth show we ever did, March 30th back in 2013, and that's he is a uh, Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. Now, who is he? Dr. Beisner is founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a network of evangelical scholars working to promote biblical Earth stewardship. Economic Development for the Poor, and the Proclamation and Defense of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. An interdisciplinary scholar in theology, philosophy, apologetics, economics, history, environmental stewardship, and public policy, Dr. Beisner taught at Calvin College from, at Covenant College from 1992 to 2000, and Knox Theological Seminary from 2000 to 2008. He has lectured on the science, economics, and ethics of environment and climate policy at universities and conferences around the world and testifies as an expert witness on the ethics of climate policy before committees of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. In 2014, the Heritage Foundation honored him with the Outstanding Spokesman for Faith, Science, and Stewardship Award at the Ninth International Conference on Climate Change. He has written a dozen books and over 30 contributed to to over 30 hours and published over a thousand articles. Well, Dr. Bosner, that it certainly seems like you just you just haven't been active enough lately, you know? <laughs> uh, no, I suppose not. Uh, actually, my schedule has had me on the road for probably about half of the first five months of uh, this year, uh, traveling all over, speaking. It's been a very exciting time for us. Well, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Um, if my audience might not know too much about who you are. They know who you are academically, but tell us about who you are personally. How did you get to be a Christian? How did you get to be doing what you're doing today? Well, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. It really is all by the grace of God. I was not born into a Christian family. My parents I would describe as, as God-fearing Gentiles, so to speak. Uh, they knew that God was real. They knew that they were accountable to him, and they, they sought to live with integrity, but they really didn't know the gospel. When I was actually a toddler, uh, my family moved to Calcutta, India, where my father was working with the United States uh, State Department under the U.S. Information Agency. And shortly after we arrived there, uh, my mother contracted a virus that attacked her spinal cord and paralyzed her. Uh, 
for that reason, um, my my three sisters and I uh, couldn't have her care in the home, but my father had to be out working, of course, uh, for the State Department. And my two eldest sisters were old enough to be in school at the time, and in fact, they attended Loretto House, which was uh, run by uh, the the nun who later became Mother Teresa. But wow. my younger, my the, the third sister and I were too young to be in school, so we were sort of farmed out to Indian families to take care of us for the day. And each day, early in the morning, very early in the morning, my ayah, uh, a, a sort of a nurse maid, would arrive early in the morning and take me by the hand and walk me the several blocks to the home where I would spend the day. And I have some very, very powerful picture memories from that time. Uh, one set of them is of a beautiful, beautiful tree with flowering vines hanging from it in the courtyard of the apartment complex in which we lived. Uh, that, uh, that memory or that set of memories uh, helped to install, instill in me a love of the beauty of God's creation. But the other set of memories came from our walking down the street so early in the morning that the trucks had not yet come around to pick up the dead bodies of those who had died of starvation and disease overnight. Thousands of them every night in Calcutta, a, a city that <laughs> whose population simply wasn't even numbered, but even back in the late 1950s, it was in the several millions. And that gave me picture memories that that are impossible to dispense with, that gave me a horror of poverty and a desire to see it overcome. Well, at the time, uh, as I said, my parents were not Christians. My dad prayed to God and said to him, basically, you can take my son if you'll give my wife back to me. By which he meant that <laughs> that I could die as a toddler, and uh, uh, well, God God answered his prayer not exactly the way he intended. Um, quite quite I think miraculously, my mother recovered from her paralysis after a number of months. Uh, it had not been expected that she would ever ever recover at all, but she did recover, and. Uh, then after a year there in Calcutta, we returned to the United States. Now, about, um, well, let's see, I guess it would have been about uh, 10 years later, 11 years later, um, my, my dad took my mother and me to a Billy Graham crusade in Anaheim, California, 1968. And there, Dad and I both were converted to Christ. We we heard and we understood and we believed the gospel and we gave our hearts to Christ there. So that was how I became a Christian. And starting a few years after that, I was discipled by uh, staff with Campus Crusade for Christ and they taught me how to, how to witness. And the first time I ever tried doing that without anyone else with me, uh, it turned out that the fellow I started to talk to was a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> so he began witnessing back to me. And I knew what I believed. I knew that I believed in the Trinity and in justification by, by faith, not by doing good works. But 
but I really didn't know very well why. And so that drove me to a Christian bookstore where I began buying books on, uh, first of all, on Jehovah's Witnesses, but then on broader areas of Christian theology and then apologetics and biblical studies and, and so on. And, and within a couple of years, I was reading books all the time. And I, I was I was studying Greek on my own. I was reading systematic theologies and biblical commentaries and the like. And uh, that really propelled me into a life of, of Christian service as a, a teacher one way or another <laughs> through the years since then. My, my early interests were primarily in evangelism and apologetics. But in the early 1980s, I began to have a great interest in economics, uh, particularly as I saw I saw various Christians writing about economics in ways that uh, seemed to me not to use the Bible very well and often not to use logic and reasoning very well. And I was concerned that if they also didn't use economics very well, they might be giving advice that could actually bring more harm than good. Uh, so I made a point of, as I usually do, uh, reading a bunch of books on the subject, in this case economics and wound up doing, after my, my BA in interdisciplinary studies in religion and philosophy with, with uh, classical languages and classical history as the uh, minors, uh, I wound up doing a master's in society with a specialization in economic ethics under the, the late uh, Dr. Russell Kirk, who was one of, the, one of the 20th century's leading conservative scholars. Uh, and then uh, because of that, I was asked to write a, a book on uh, economics, uh, sort of an introductory textbook on economics from the perspective of Christian worldview and theology and ethics for Crossway Books, which was publishing a series of books uh, called the Turning Point Christian Worldview Series. And uh, uh, I, I went ahead and did that. That became the book Prosperity and Poverty, the Compassionate Use of Resources in the World of Scarcity, published in 1988. And one chapter of that was supposed to be on how uh, economics and environment and population and resources and pollution issues all intertwine together. Uh, but as I worked on that, I realized that couldn't be done in a chapter. So I told, I told Dr. Marvin Olasky, who was the series editor and is now the editor-in-chief of World Magazine. Many people will be familiar with him because of his many books and, and other writings. And he also was the man who coined the term compassionate conservatism. I told Marvin that I couldn't do it in a chapter, and he said, well, then write another book just on that. So that became my book, Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population and Resources in the Future, which came out in 1990. And that, together with a, a lot of articles that I began writing, kind of made my reputation as a Christian scholar in the application of biblical worldview, theology, and economics to uh, to uh, uh, to the environment uh, and public policy and that eventually led to my writing other books and more articles and teaching at Covenant College, teaching at Knox Theological Seminary, and then eventually founding what became the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. You know, when you were talking about getting all the books all the time and thinking about it in connection with money, two quotes came to mind, meet women, money can't buy happiness, but it can buy books, which is kind of the same thing. <laughs> And, yes, indeed. And, and then I used to work at Christian Research Institute, and Hank Hanegraaff's assistant said that he saw 
book bag with a quote from Erasmus, and he said, I, I thought about getting this for you because it matches you so well, and I'm sure you already know the quote, which <laughs> I do. is better. When I have money, I buy books, and if I have anything left over, I buy food and clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. In fact, I have a beautiful carved uh, wooden piece of, uh, of a, uh, a poster that was uh, painted, uh, illustrating that of a a man climbing up his ladder along his bookcases, and uh, someone kindly gave that to me a number of years ago. You mentioned that you worked uh, at the Christian Research Institute for a while. I worked there in the 1970s uh, under Dr. Walter Martin, Uh, so he really trained me in cult apologetics back at that time. Ah, excellent. Well, since we're talking about apologetics, a lot of people could be hearing this thing. Okay, you're, t- you're in a project show. You're talking about economics. What does how you spend your money have to do with apologetics? Well, you know, uh, as as Christian apologists, uh, our purpose in doing apologetics is to remove uh, potholes on the road to the cross, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the potholes I think that happens often is that uh, people people tend to think that that uh, Western civilization, Western society, especially American society, is somehow responsible for the suffering of many people in the third world because we're rich and they're poor. And if people understood economics better, I think they wouldn't have that sort of a complaint. They would recognize. They would recognize that uh, that it is possible uh, not just to divide a fixed pie into smaller and smaller pieces to give to more and more people, but rather to enlarge the pie. Mm-hmm. The reason for this is that God made human beings in his image to be creative, productive, uh, as he is. Uh, God started with nothing and made everything. Uh, that's not 100% profit because 100% of nothing would still be nothing. It's absolute profit. Uh, so if there's any question in anyone's mind about the morality of profit, well, look at that. Uh, God made absolute profit there. Now, we don't make something out of nothing, but the better and better we get at making more and more out of less and less, the more we reflect the image of God in that respect. Economics is a discipline, an intellectual discipline, that helps us to figure out how we can expand the pie, so to Mm -hmm. speak, how we can uh, make more and more out of less and less uh, so that more and more people rise out of poverty. You know, for the whole history of the human race, until the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, uh, life was, as Thomas Hobbes put it, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short for pretty much everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Average life expectancy at birth was about 27 or 28 years. Pretty much half of all children born died by age five. Uh, And that was the case not only for the so-called poor, (laughs) and they were indeed very, very poor, but even for the so-called rich of that day. And by the way, most, most people in the developed world today are rich beyond the dreams of avarice for even kings and queens of most of history. Mm -hmm. Uh, They never had running water, indoor plumbing, uh, uh, antibiotics, electricity, uh, ice in the summer, heat in the winter, any of those things. Uh, We are incredibly blessed. 
but even for the so-called rich of that period, uh, death was uh, death came pretty early for most, and certainly infant and child mortality was a, a great problem. Queen Anne of England, for instance, uh, who reigned in the early 18th century, had 19 children. None of them survived to adulthood, and yet she at the time was probably the richest person in the world. Uh, so, so we need to recognize that a part of how we as Christians can remove roadblocks on the way to the cross, or uh, uh, potholes on the way to the, on the road to the cross, as I often put it, is by by removing one of the complaints against the West, which is that Christianity somehow or other uh, pushed it toward getting wealthy at the expense of the, the developing world or the, the uh, not-so-wealthy world. Uh, that isn't the case, and if we understand economics properly, we, we can do that. Now, another part is simply that as we get to understand economics better and better, we can support those policies that, uh, that result in economic development in poorer parts of the world. And, you know, our love for people is expressed most of all, especially by communicating the gospel to them, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. This is Paul's summary of it in 1 Corinthians 15. Mm -hmm. But also, we show them our love by helping them to thrive as human beings in terms of, of their, their life, their health, their liberty, their property, and so on. All these things we should want to promote. Uh, as we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, your system that you defend in prosperity and poverty is a capitalist system. What exactly do we mean when we speak about capitalism? Well, essentially, I wrap it up this way. By the way, we should remember that the term capitalism was coined as a criticism of the system by Karl Marx. It was not coined by any of the advocates of this idea. Kind of like the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, Karl Marx uh, coined that term, and it was basically a pejorative term. Uh, the idea behind what has since come more widely to be expressed as capitalism is, is that uh, private property rights, entrepreneurship, uh, free trade within the bounds of God's moral law, so that you know, free trade doesn't mean you can have a business called Murder Incorporated. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we have to respect other people's rights in how we use our property and how we trade our property with others. But uh, private property rights, free trade, entrepreneurship, limited government, the rule of law, uh, things of this sort are very important to uh, to freeing people to be as productive as they can be. One of the insights of free market economics, which is uh, my preferred term for it, or uh, another term is classical liberalism, uh, the, one of the insights of that was actually brought up by Adam Smith, who's most widely known as the, the founder of modern economics, but he was not an economist. He was a professor of moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow in Scotland uh, back in the late 18th century. Uh, Smith was, as a professor of moral philosophy, uh, responsible for giving lectures on 
ethics. And he wrote a fascinating book, a wonderful book, uh, called The Theory of Moral Sentiments that came out in 1759. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, I still recommend it highly. It's one of the best books on ethics ever done. Uh, but in one small part of that, he, he set forth the idea that if you left people to free to pursue their own interests within the limits of God's moral law, that is, if you didn't try to coordinate their activities uh, in order to serve the common good, the public good, but allowed them to serve their own interests, again, repeat this, it's very important, within the boundaries of God's moral law, they would actually serve each other and the general public better than if you tried to coordinate their activities intentionally. Mm -hmm. Now, that idea was absolutely revolutionary for that day. Many people criticized Smith quite roundly. And so, years later, uh, in 1776, he published what was, in essence, his empirical defense of that notion, uh, the book titled, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. Uh, most people just know it by the title, The Wealth of Nations. Uh, but it's, it's interesting that he titled it as he did. It's an inquiry. That implies that the nature and causes of the wealth of nations are not obvious. They need careful consideration. Uh, into the nature of the wealth of nations. What is wealth? Well, Smith decide, defined wealth as the purchasing power of common labor, not as... <laughs> how much gold and silver and precious stones you had in the royal treasury, which was the common definition of the wealth of nations at the time. And Smith pointed out that if we recognize this, well, uh, Spain, which had enormous amounts of gold and silver in the royal treasury, was poor because the common laborers in Spain uh, had very little purchasing power. But uh, Great Britain at the time, which had very little uh, gold and silver in the royal treasury by comparison, was very rich because its common laborers had much greater purchasing power. And why did they have that? There's the inquiry into the causes of the wealth mm -hmm. of nations. Well, they had that precisely because uh, the British authorities left people free to pursue their own interests, and therefore they found out through, uh, through trial and error uh, they found out what they were good at and uh, what their comparative advantages were. And as they produced more than they themselves could consume, they traded it with others. And so they began to specialize and they became increasingly productive. So uh, that's, that's essentially why I would uh, be so interested in this. And I defend it not just simply on those pragmatic grounds that it does, in fact, uh, lift people out of poverty far better than any other system, but also because I believe that it is firmly rooted in biblical ethics. I think that a careful study of the Ten Commandments, which I undertook in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10 of my book, uh, Prosperity and Poverty, I think that a careful study of the Ten Commandments uh, gives firm support for free market or classical liberal economics. Hey, Dr. Weisner, one of the seven deadly sins is supposed to be greed, and we all know capitalism supports greed. Well, no, as a matter of fact, capitalism does not support greed. Uh, capitalism instead supports 
pursuing our own interests. Now, <laughs> interest and greed are not the same thing. If I, if I have uh, a great desire to support missionary work in some, uh, some country in sub-Saharan Africa, then it is, uh, according to the understanding of classical liberal economics, uh, that support is my interest and I can pursue it. Uh, similarly, if I have a desire for a Lamborghini automobile, well, that's my interest and I can pursue that. Now, the, the, for, the, the former is obviously very selfless and altruistic. The latter may be very much a matter of greed. Uh, capitalism or free market economics doesn't determine which of those uh, motivations uh, might drive you to do your productive activities. What it is interested in is, is figuring out what is it that's most likely to drive you to serve other people. And if I want to be able to have lots of money to give to the missionary work, uh, well, I have to earn that money somehow. And the way for me to earn it is to serve other people in a manner that they're willing to pay me for. Um, if, if I want the Lamborghini, also, I can only get that Lamborghini. I can only serve my greed if I serve other people by providing for them what they want and are willing uh, freely to pay me for it. Uh, now, that doesn't justify the greed, but the amazing thing about capitalism is that it harnesses that greed to the service of others. It says, I'm not allowed to get richer except by serving others. Now, you said this is part of a biblical worldview, but don't we have grounds against this? I mean, if you go to Acts 2 and you read about the early church, they were giving to whenever they each came together, they act like nothing was their own, they shared everything. I mean, that sounds more like communism than capitalism. Well, and some people have actually tried to uh, argue that that passage does require communism. Uh, Jose Miranda, uh, a liberation theologian of the 1960s and 1970s, uh, wrote quite simply that uh, that passage made it clear that if you were going to be a Christian, you had to be a communist. Um, certain, uh, certain radical Anabaptists of the Reformation period read that passage that way as well, and so they sought to abolish private property. Uh, wherever they wherever they were able to gain control politically, uh, for instance, in the city of Münster in Germany, uh, they sought to abolish private property and, by the way, also to abolish private uh, spousal relations, uh, so to speak. Um, that led to significant problems. I can imagine. Uh, yeah, Karl Marx actually derived his understanding of communism from, uh, indirectly, but from the radical Anabaptists of the Reformation period. Well, what's wrong with that reading of Acts chapter 2 and the similar passage in Acts chapter 4? Well, the first one is that uh, it, it neglects the fact that it still describes the property that people use as theirs. People sold their fields and so on, and then divided the proceeds uh, for the sake of those who were in need among them. Now, another thing that it, it uh, neglects is that the selling was not immediate and complete. It was instead uh, incremental over a period of time. As they saw people have, uh, having needs, they were selling. The Greek 
uh, tense of the verb there is uh, is what's called imperfect. And in Greek, that indicates an action that begins and continues over time, rather than one that is completed all in one fell swoop, so to speak. Uh, which means that uh, I might have I might have a field, and I become aware that some fellow Christian is in great need. So I might sell, uh, say, 10% of my field and give that money to the uh, leaders of the church to distribute to the needy Christians in the congregation. Well, the 90% of the field still remains mine. But later on, I see another need, and I sell another 5%. But the remaining 85% is still mine. Now, uh, so this doesn't mean that they instantly got rid of all their property. Another thing that it neglects, that this idea that, that this passage supports common, uh, communism, is that the passage does not say that everyone considered what whatever belonged to others to belong to himself, right? Mm. It says instead, no one considered what belonged to him to be his own. That is, it was the attitude of the owner of property that he owned that property in order to serve others. It was not the attitude of the non-owner of property that the owner of the property owed him that property. Uh, in other words, it was a selfless giving attitude rather than a selfish taking attitude. And finally, maybe. too, it was voluntary. Uh, yep. Nothing nothing forced them to do that. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 4, where we have that passage, uh, where a, a very similar passage, the one in Acts chapter 2. Well, that is followed up immediately at the start of Acts chapter 5 by the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Right. And they sold a field, and they brought, or Ananias brought, part of the price of the field to the disciples, uh, the apostles, but they de he declared that it was the whole price of the field. So he lied, in other words. And Peter then said to him, Ananias, why did you why did you lie to the Holy Spirit while the field was yours, while the land was yours? Uh, was it not under your control when you sold it? Was it not still uh, in your power? Uh, you have not lied to men, but to God. And then Ananias fell dead. Uh, Sapphira later came in, and she repeated the same story, and she too fell dead. What was wrong was not that they didn't give everything, but that they lied about how much they gave. Mm -hmm. Well, at this point, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is E. Calvin Beisner. We're talking about uh, economics, prosperity, and poverty. But if you're listening next week, we'll have another interesting show. My friend Albert McLehenny is going to be on. He's written an excellent book series, and it's still in the progress on Jesus mythicism. That's right, those crazy people you meet on the internet who claim Jesus never existed, and this is one of the best series on them, and he's going to be here next week talking about it. So I hope you're, you'll be there for that. And I have to remind you all that Deeper Wartners is listener-supported. If you want to support us, what do you do? Go to deeperwartners.ddns.net. Now, you'll find on the left, it says, Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. If you go down on the side, there's a link in there. You can click that, and it takes you to a work of Risen Jesus, the ministry of Mike Lacona. Have you gone to the right place? You sure have. Those are my in-laws right there. 
And when you go there, you make your donation, and if you can set be a monthly donor, that's even better. And then you email me, or you email Debbie Lacona, and you say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And we'll keep an eye out for that donation, and when it comes, we'll get that donation. Mike and Debbie make sure we get that money, and we try and put it to the best use that we can. Now, you can also go to Amazon and buy some of the ebooks that we've got. Most recently, Groundless. We've also got my book on the Apostles' Creed, A Creed for the Ages. We've got Defining Inerrancy. Got a few others there. And we're working, in fact, on getting a jewelry page set up. And if you want to talk to me about this, that's I, I encourage you to do so. But um, if you're a man, for instance, and you're planning on buying, say, an engagement ring or something very special for a lady in your life, why not buy it and have it do so in a way that you can support a ministry? If you buy through my friend Lena Clester at Premier Jewelry, she will make sure 25% of your purchase price goes to deeper waters. You just have to let her know about it, and she'll tell you how it's done. So, look, if you're going to buy something special for a lady in your life, that's a win-win situation right there. Now, Dr. Weisner, do you have an organization you'd like people to support, and if so, how do they do that? I sure do. I lead the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, which mm -hmm. you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Of the show. We're a network of about 60 uh, scholars, evangelical scientists and economists and theologians, uh, sprinkled at universities and colleges and research centers around, the, around North America. And as I said, we, we work to, uh, to promote uh, biblical earth stewardship, which is not the same thing as environmentalism, because much of environmentalism is rooted in anti-Christian worldview, theology, and ethics, and uses very poor science and economics. And we try to make sure that we are rooted in very solidly biblical uh, worldview, theology, and ethics, and use excellent science and economics. Uh, but uh, the first thing we try to work to promote is biblical earth stewardship, or what we also call godly dominion, men and women created in God's image, working lovingly together to enhance the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors so that we're really addressing the two great commandments to love God and to love neighbor. Second, economic development for the very poor around the world. Think especially in terms of places like Sub-Saharan Africa, Haiti, other parts of uh, Latin America and Asia and so on. Uh, through, uh, through free market economics, um, private property rights, uh, uh, entrepreneurship, free trade, and, and limited government and the rule of law. And the third is uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we do this by, by speaking at places all over the world, literally, and uh, by a lot of writing and by our website. And people can donate to support the Cornwall Alliance, a fully tax-deductible donation, by going to cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org online. Uh, we have a donation button on most, pretty much every page there that people can see easily. Uh, we have a secure website for them to donate at. And uh, there, too, they can sign up to be monthly donors, which is especially helpful to us. And as monthly donors, they will automatically receive each month, uh, as they, their automatic donation comes in, the, a, a product that we're offering as our thanks 
to those who donate any amount and request it. Uh, we give books, we give DVDs, we give other sorts of products, uh, always educational products, always, uh, always very fine quality uh, materials. So again, cornwallalliance.org, and uh, I hope to uh, hear from some of your listeners there. You know, Dr. Bosno, your book, Prosperity and Poverty, has a, the title needs of the compassionate use of resources in a world of scarcity. So after making a call like this, people can, could look and say, look, this is a world of scarcity. I'm trying to take care of my own family and my own support, and money just is very tight. Why should I give to a ministry like the Cornwall Alliance, or why should I give to a fledgling starting ministry like Deeper Waters, or to any other ministry of that sort? I mean, I give to my own church, scene. isn't that enough? What is so important about giving and how can I help the economy? Well, first of all, I would say that the uh, the priority in our giving should always be to the church congregation of which we are a part. Right. Uh, I think that should that should come number one. Uh, but then there are all sorts of different ways that we can support the work of the kingdom of Jesus Christ around the world. And, and there are various different ministries that we can do that through. Uh, I wouldn't assume that anybody would be giving only to the Cornwall Alliance. I would right. hope that people would give to many different ministries. Mm-hmm. Why should we do that? Well, <laughs> the Lord calls us to be generous, uh, to mimic himself. Uh, Jesus uh who was rich became poor that we through him might be made rich, Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter eight. Uh, now, of course, he was speaking; he was writing spiritually there in terms of Christ having come down from heaven, but he used that to illustrate uh, and to motivate the Corinthians to give financially to help those in need in Jerusalem. Uh, the people in Jerusalem had sent missionaries to bring the gospel to the to the uh, unbelievers in Corinth and then those unbelievers had come to know Christ and have their sins forgiven and be reconciled to God and Paul said now you need to do the same back that is you benefit them they gave to you out of the riches of their spiritual possession you give to them out of the riches of your material possession uh, so now of course too Paul also wrote that this was to be voluntary and that his intent was not that anyone should should uh, lack because of his giving, uh, but rather that, that all might have what was needed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wouldn't be wanting to, uh, to make anybody feel guilty for right. not giving more than he's able. I'd leave it all up to each one. Paul says, let it be done uh, cheerfully and voluntarily. Uh, and each of us has to answer for his own conscience before the Lord. And when we give to a project ministry, things like yours, we're also saying the ideas that are being promoted are ones we want to support and to encourage. Right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, uh, your ministry and mine both uh, mm-hmm. seek to reach out and and provide answers to those who have questions about the Christian faith. We provide uh, rebuttals to objections to the Christian faith. Uh, And we also, uh, frankly, uh, with the Cornwall Alliance, we are uh, working especially to protect the poor around the world uh, 
mm-hmm. from the very negative consequences of a great deal of environmental policy. I mentioned earlier that most of the environmental movement uses pretty poor science and economics. And a result of that is a lot of, the, a lot of its policy is very harmful to the world's poor. Uh, let me give you an illustration of that, if I may. Um, the call to fight uh, to, re- to reduce uh, man-made global warming uh, calls for us to, to greatly reduce our use of coal, oil, and natural gas. These are what are often called fossil fuels mm-hmm. on the grounds that when we use those, we add more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, and that carbon dioxide uh, uh, traps some heat in the atmosphere, so it raises the temperature of the Earth, and that could be dangerous. Well, in theory, perhaps, but the key question is how much? And increasing scientific research is showing that the warming effect of that added CO2 is very, very slight, certainly not dangerous. But there are those who, for a variety of different reasons, still want to impose these policies. The problem with the policies is that abundant, affordable, reliable energy is absolutely indispensable to lift and to keep any society out of poverty. But fossil fuels are the most abundant, affordable, reliable source of energy in our world today, along with nuclear. Uh, And right now, fossil fuels provide about 86% of all energy used in the world. And by the way, that's not a made-up statistic. That's that's a statistic that you'll get from the International Energy Agency and, and others. 86%. To force us to reduce CO2 emissions by reducing our use of fossil fuels is to force people to turn from those abundant, affordable, reliable fuels to diffuse, expensive, unreliable fuels like wind and solar and biofuels. What that does is it raises the cost of energy for everyone, and it raises the cost of everything else, too, because everything that we make, everything that we transport, everything that we do requires energy. And it's always the poor who get hurt the worst by this. Mm. In the United States, for instance, the average American household spends about 9% of its post-tax income on energy. The average poor household in the United States spends uh, about 19% of its income on energy. So if you raise the cost of energy, you're hurting that poor family more than you're hurting other people. In the developing world, um, the average sub-Saharan African woman spends about six to eight hours a day gathering wood and dung uh, to use as her primary cooking and heating fuels. Those uh, create smoke that kills about four million people a year and, and uh, sickens hundreds of millions with debilitating upper respiratory diseases, much worse than what you've just been oh, yes. uh, suffering through. Uh, and and that's that's a great tragedy. Those people desperately need to replace that primitive energy system with uh, a modern fossil fuel driven uh, uh, grid delivered electricity system that would free them from the terrible burden of the time it takes to gather that fuel and the terrible illness and and premature death that the smoke from it causes. So we seek through the Cornwall Alliance to protect the poor Mm -hmm. by explaining the dangers of these policies 
and showing that good science does not support the notion of dangerous man-made global warming. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about some of these economic policies, how they affect us on a day-to-day basis, using an example. There are a lot of fast food workers out there right now, you know, they're trying to get by, they're trying to support their families, and their wages just aren't enough. They want a living wage of 15 bucks an hour. Now, shouldn't we be compassionate on these people who are just trying to take care of their families and give them what they want? Well, my goodness, I think it would be much better to have a minimum wage of $100 an hour. I mean, if we're going to do this, why not be really <laughs> generous? Make it $100 an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be wonderful, right? Wrong. Mm-hmm. Wrong. It would not be wonderful at all because what it would do would make every person who's not capable of earning $100 an hour no longer capable of having a job. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Dr. James Buchanan, uh, who was a Nobel Prize winner in economics, uh, wrote in his book, What Should Economists Do?, about one other economist who, as Buchanan put it, essentially disqualified himself as an economist by trying to argue in favor of the minimum wage. Every single empirical study that's ever been done on the minimum wage and its effects has shown what the, that what the minimum wage does is it disemploys low-skilled workers, meaning it keeps them from getting their jobs or it takes their jobs away from them, and shifts those jobs to higher-skilled workers. So the minimum wage actually does the exact opposite of what it is, is advertised to do. It doesn't help the poor. It hurts the poor by keeping them from getting jobs in the first place. And what they need is jobs where they learn the skills that allow them to climb up the economic ladder. But the minimum wage essentially means (laughs) cutting off the lower rungs of the ladder so that people can't get a start up the ladder. Uh, that's, That's the practical effect of it. But the moral effect of it is, is, is also very bad. Um, morally, it prevents two free individuals, an employer and a potential employee, from entering freely into a non, uh, you know, non-abusive, non, uh, non-deceptive, non-violent contract to trade wage for labor. That freedom is inherent in the meaning of private property in Scripture. Uh, The biblical understanding of private property says that we are free to trade it with others at a price that we voluntarily agree to. Uh, If we use a minimum wage, then we're prohibiting uh, some employees, some potential employees, from from trading their labor for a wage and some potential employers from trading their wage for a labor. That's a violation of biblical ethics there. But besides that, when you uh, create a minimum wage and when you raise a minimum wage, you, as I said, bar more people from employment. That means that those people then are likely to go on government support. But the government can only support them through welfare checks, food stamps, housing assistance, and so on. The government can only do that by taking from some people what belongs to them and giving to other people what doesn't belong to them. That itself is also a violation of biblical property rights. 
the, the, the authority of government to tax is real, and it's true, but it's proper only to support the God-ordained role of government, which is to enforce justice by, by, uh, pre by prohibiting, preventing, uh, prosecuting, and punishing fraud, theft, and violence by doing national defense. Uh, but making sure that somebody's got a particular uh, level of housing or clothing or food or education or whatever else, that's not what God calls the government to do. And when government takes from one to give to another in order to support that, it is violating biblical property rights. The, the commandment does not say you shall not steal unless you are the government. Okay, but someone might be listening saying, okay, you're saying minimum wage, if you do that, all of a sudden people can't get jobs. I'm not seeing a connection. Why would having a minimum wage mean someone can't get a job? Well, because it's not legal for an employer to hire him at a wage that he can actually earn. If, uh, you know, suppose I, I you know, <laughs> were to demand of my, uh, of, of, the, of the Cornwall Alliance, uh, of the board of directors, that they have to pay me $250,000 a year. No, they actually like me. They all like me. They oh, love yeah. me. They're, they're my brothers, right, and, and right. sister. Uh, but they know that I can't, uh, I can't, through my labor, generate that much income. And so they're not going to pay that. If we make it illegal for a business to hire somebody for less than $15 an hour, then all the people whose skills cannot generate $15 an hour will have to go unemployed. Right. Uh, that's what has happened every time the minimum wage has has been increased is that people with lower skills get unemployed because of it. Mm -hmm. They need instead to have jobs where they learn skills and can begin to climb the ladder. And by the way, uh, the vast majority of people who earn uh, minimum wage, even at the present uh, $7 and what, 35 cents or something like that, I think is the federal minimum wage, the vast majority of, of people who earn wages that low are not supporting families. Most of them are uh, are young people who live in their own parents' home, who do not have dependents, and are earning money uh, to supplement what their parents uh, make for them. A few of them are uh, young people who have moved out but are sharing an apartment with another and so on. Uh, very, very few people uh, still are unable to earn more than a minimum wage uh, who are supporting families. And frankly, if that's the case, well, uh, either they need to gain more skills, which they might do by, by study and by uh, learning more on the job, or perhaps they need to go to their families, their extended families, and ask for assistance, or to their churches and ask for yep. assistance. I've uh, said before that one of the biggest mistakes the church has made in the past is letting the government take over the role of charity yes. for them. Yes, and I argue that extensively in my book, Prosperity and Poverty. Uh -huh. uh, after having done three chapters on the economic role of the state, uh, where I, I outline biblically what the limits are to that, uh, I then have three chapters on the nature and the causes and solutions to poverty. And the real solutions lie with individuals taking care of themselves and their families, families taking care of their own, 
and churches taking care first and foremost of their own and then also of those in their communities. Uh, when this is done in, an, in a, a proper way, it is extremely effective. Mm-hmm. Sadly, however, uh, government agencies starting in the early 20th century, but increasingly from the 1950s and 60s forward, government agencies have actually intentionally sought to crowd private, voluntary, philanthropic organizations out from the task of caring for the poor. And the result has been enormous corruption, enormous inefficiency, and actually trapping many people in in poverty by having government programs that give people an incentive to continue the behavior that leads to and perpetuates poverty rather than giving them an incentive to climb out of poverty. Mm-hmm. And very, a lot of people could say, well, this is such a huge daunting task, and I was like, yeah, but the church can do it. And we're, we're the church of Christ. We're supposed to leave war. We're not supposed to be one say, hey, we're going to go out and give a gospel, and oh, we need the help of the government to do that too. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, Frankly, a lot of people, I think, uh, have a serious misunderstanding of what poverty is and of what God uh, intends us to do about it mm-hmm. in terms of our obligations, our, our moral uh, desire to love others. You know, the Bible defines poverty as actual destitution. You're, you're poor if you have basically nothing and you're in danger of starving if, if somebody doesn't help. Okay, uh, in the United States, we define poverty as as having income below a certain uh, level that is uh, established by the federal government. Uh, and frankly, America's so-called poor have greater purchasing power than average citizens of Western Europe. Uh, they tend to have larger homes, more and better cars. Uh, refrigerators, ovens, uh, microwaves, televisions, everything else, all sorts of different things. America's so-called poor uh, live above the level of average people in most of Western Europe, which is supposedly a rich part of the world. No, real poverty is destitution. And the, the Apostle Paul says that, that he had learned to be content in whatever state he was, to abound and to suffer want. Uh, He said, if we have food and covering, we have learned therewith to be content. And that's Mm -hmm. the real measure. Do I have the food and the covering, clothing and shelter, necessary to protect me from the natural elements? Mm -hmm. If I have those, I'm not poor. If I don't have those, okay, then I'm poor. Well, what that means is that the level we aim to lift people up to in ministering to the poor is not uh, a standard of living equivalent to the average person in Western Europe, but rather simply sufficient food and covering to be protected from the elements. And that the churches certainly could do for all of the, um, the, the truly poor in the United States, not the federally defined poor, by the way. Well, Dr. Bison, it's been great to have you on, even if it's only been a brief time to talk about economic theory and relational apologetics. And we could talk a whole lot more about these 
matters, I'm sure. But if people want to find out more or contact you, uh, how do they go about doing that? I'm sure it's probably through Cornwall, right? Yeah, the best place to go is to cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash cornwallalliance, or mm. of course just look for us, search for us on Facebook, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And I myself maintain a pretty yes. active Facebook page, uh, E. Calvin Beisner, mm. uh, there on Facebook. So those are all ways that people can be in touch and particularly that they can learn from our ministry. We have a free uh, email newsletter that goes out several times a week that is uh, educational, and we try to post several uh, new things every day on our Facebook page. So there are all sorts of ways that people can learn, and our, our website is just loaded with outstanding articles and studies uh, that people can use. And we offer a series of videos on DVD called Resisting the Green Dragon, mm -hmm. uh, 12 lectures and a half-hour documentary. So it's actually a, a full uh, Sunday school quarter curriculum in a box because it has a, a study guide with it. And we offer other products as well through our online store, uh, cornwallalliance.org. Uh, just click on Shop and you can find those. Yeah, I'm looking on Amazon right now. The book Prosperity and Poverty you got here. I'm not sure what you think about this, but it's available on from paperback from one penny and up. <laughs> yeah, that would be used. Uh, new, of course, it has a standard retail price uh, on uh, on Amazon.com. But used copies of many books are available for as little as a penny apiece, and yeah. that's a great thing. I I love that. Yeah, when you it says nine U from two fifty five right now. Uh -huh. now, do you have any plans on this coming out on Kindle? Uh, I don't, as a matter of fact, um, uh, though I may be writing another book for Kindle in the fairly near future, the Lord willing. Well, if that happens and you want to, you'd be glad to, we'd be glad to promote it here on Deeper Waters. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Uh, do you have any uh, final message you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience today? I think it would be twofold. First of all, uh, that if, if any of you yet know the forgiveness of their sins, I would urge them to go to God and, and to trust in Christ and Him alone, uh, to play, place their faith in Him. Remember, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Mm -hmm. And then, for those who do know Christ, who have uh, trusted Him as their Savior and their Lord, I would remind them of what God says through Micah. Uh, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Well, Dr. Byers, it's been great having you on here a second time, and I will see you back here again for a third time sometime. Well, thank you very much, and I'll look forward to that. Yeah. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I can remind you next week we're having Albert McLehenny come on. We're going to be talking about Jesus mythicism, one of my favorite topics to talk about. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off until next week. <laughs>